We are trucking right along through the book of Job. Uh, as I've said the previous weeks of the series, each of the talks in this series builds on the last. So uh, for you to get the most out of these, please listen to any prior talks you missed. Uh, it'll make everything make much more sense. This talk, Gifts Over Demands, <laughs> went um, in a direction I did not anticipate. Uh, we're moving off of what I planned, but I think it'll be good because as I was writing what I thought was the talk for tonight, uh, I came across a part of the text that struck me in a way that it hadn't before. And I got really angry, like to the point of tears, angry, like to the point of putting, oh my God, in the liturgy tonight, because it felt appropriate. But we'll come back to that. First, we're going to look at the third and final cycle of speeches between Job and his friends tonight that encompass uh, chapters 22 through 31 of the book of Job. So 10 chapters and things get real weird here, <laughs> uh, but I really wanted to get the chance to help explain what's happening. If you've been following along and are curious, uh, because honestly, uh, in putting together these talks, this section has been driving me crazy and I finally got some answers about it. Uh, based on the previous two cycles, everything starts this cycle as we would expect it to in chapter 22. Job's friend Eliphaz uh, begins his third and final speech and he is just cranked to 11. Um, he is now full on accusing Job of really specific evil acts like <laughs> exploiting the weak and crushing orphans and other terrible things like that. Nasty stuff. Uh, basically saying that Job is the worst of the worst. Uh, he's gone from in his first speech saying, Job, you're a good man who must have just made some mistake to here now finally saying, hey man, here are all these super evil things that you've been doing for years that everybody knows about. And all this suffering that you're experiencing is God's punishment and his judgment against you. So get off your high horse already. Admit it. Admit that you're evil, that you're the worst. Uh, repent and God will restore you. No big deal. He's a broken record at this point. And like he has every other time, Job answers Eliphaz in chapters 22, or sorry, 23 and 24. And he again, it continues to maintain his innocence and again, laments that God is so silent and distant, especially when there are clearly evil people in the world getting away with their monstrous acts every day that aren't being punished the way Job is when Job hasn't done anything wrong. That brings us to chapter 25 and things from here on out, get very, very, well, not here on out, for the next four chapters, get very, very convoluted and very, very strange. Uh, if you have a decent study Bible, it should certainly point this out. But in chapters 25 through 28, it's clear that there are just sections of the text that are missing. And uh, the text that we do have is all jumbled and out of order. Uh, Bildad, Oh man, this is the last week I get to talk about Bildad. That's sad because he's my favorite name to make fun of. Uh, Bildad's third and final speech is incredibly short. It's chapter 25 and it's just six verses. And then Job starts saying things that don't sound like him at all and completely contradict what he's been saying up until this point. And then Zophar's third speech is missing entirely. Poor Zophar. 
That makes understanding this section really challenging. And there's virtually no agreement on what is going on here. So it's been driving me crazy trying to figure it out. And I just thought that I never would. But the Jewish study Bible posits a solution that I think makes the most sense of anything I've read. And quite frankly, it makes so much sense that I'm frustrated that I didn't read it sooner. So for those of you who are curious, here's what is most likely going on in this jumbled up third cycle of speeches. Um, like I said, the f- Eliphaz and then Job's reply to Eliphaz make perfect sense. Bildad's third speech is is certainly all of chapter 25, but it's but the rest of it is probably chapters the 26 verses 5 through 14, which is incorrectly attributed to Job. Job's reply to Bildad is the first four verses of chapter 26, and then also the first six verses of chapter 27. And then finally, Zophar's third speech that you would think is missing is actually the remainder of chapters 27, which is verses 7 through 23, which is currently incorrectly attributed to Job. So it's like Bildad starts responding and then Job interrupts him and then Bildad keeps going. And then Job finishes responding to Bildad and then chapter, the remainder of chapter 27 is Zophar's missing third speech. That keeps everything in order, but there are still then chunks missing, like like Job's full response to Bildad, since it's broken up, it seems like maybe we're missing some bits and pieces of it. The introduction to Zophar's third speech is missing. Um, so we still have to deal with that. But when you reorder things the way that I just outlined, this at least gets everyone's thoughts organized together instead of all being mixed together. And it just makes a lot of sense if you read it this way. So go back sometime this week listen to what I said, write it down, and then read it that way and see if you don't understand what's going on. Thankfully, this only matters if you're a nerd like me, because there's not a lot of new things going on here in the story. Um, The friends and Job aren't really saying anything new, so the jumbled up nature of this cycle doesn't hinder our understanding of the story as a whole. You know what I'm saying? The friends basically just triple down on their assertion that Job is evil incarnate and Job triples down on his uh, disappointment with his friends, um, his innocence and his heartbreak over the entire situation and God's silence. Okay. That's chapters 25 through 27. That brings us to chapter 28, which is also just so confusing and there's not a lot of consensus on what is happening here. Um, it seems like all of a sudden out of the blue, we're talking about like, it's this really poetic tribute in him about wisdom right in the middle of supposedly Job refuting his friends. It doesn't make any sense at all where it is. In fact, it starts in the middle of a thought and it doesn't make a lot of sense as something that Job would be saying right in the middle of a lament. So chapter 28 is all sorts of confused. We'll come back to this chapter next week, but it should be actually after chapter 37. Yeah, it's, it's way out of place. It's, it's actually the end and connects to um, a speech by a character that we don't even know about yet. But again, we'll talk about that next week and you'll see if you put chapter 28 at the end of 37, it makes perfect sense. Not everyone agrees on that, but that's the thing that I've read um, by people who are experts in ancient Hebrew that makes the most sense to me. So that's what we're going with. Okay, 
Now, I know that that's not super easy to track with everything that I've just said mentally, but basically that has brought us through. The, the, all three friends' final speeches have happened, and that brings us to Job's final response to them in chapters 29 through 31. Um, it's first Job's response to Zophar's final speech and, and then his closing arguments to his friend as a whole. These chapters are the final extended section of Job's words, um, except for a few sentences that he'll say towards the end of the book. So in chapters 29 and 30, Job mournfully laments his current state and longs for the better days of the past. He laments when God actually took care of him. Um, and he laments now God's silence and his absence. Honestly, if you go back and read chapters 29 and 30, uh, they feel like someone has been reading uh, at least my thoughts over this past year. Um, Job expresses thoughts and feelings. I'm sure many of us can probably relate to at various points in our life, but certainly at the very least we can relate to this year at this point in 2020. But then after chapter 30, Job does something really interesting in chapter 31 that I wanted to make sure to point out to you. Job shifts um, his thoughts from being a lament to making what is called an oath of innocence. This all becomes very like courtroomy. It kind of has been the whole time, which I haven't really talked about, but this totally is like courtroom proceedings happening. Job in chapter 31 outlines several ways in which he's sure he's innocent. He addresses many of the accusations that Eliphaz makes against him earlier in chapter 22, um, but talks about things beyond that. And then in light of his declared innocence in every possible way that he can imagine, he again demands a hearing before God and then sort of rests his case. What Job is doing here is actually appealing to a section of Jewish law from Exodus 22, which is really interesting. And it's originally about property. It's a law that lays out um, what to do in this, in the following scenario. Say you give a friend some property to keep safe while you're away. Somehow at some point, despite your friend's best efforts, your property is stolen from them. And no one knows or has any evidence about who the thief is to try to hold someone responsible. Naturally, you may think that this was an inside job and that your friend is cheating you. The only way that your friend can clear their name is by making an oath of innocence. Basically, if they swear before God that they had nothing to do with the property being stolen, uh, if they swear before God that they're innocent, you are obligated to accept their innocence unless you have further evidence that contradicts their oath. Does that make sense? I don't know why I'm asking you if it makes sense. You can't answer me. <laughs> uh, you see, the thought was, since taking the Lord's name in vain is against one of the Ten Commandments, which are like the basis of Jewish law, um, taking the Lord's name in vain, that specific commandment is actually addressing oaths like this. Um, that's what it had in mind. Since that's against one of the Ten Commandments, one of the most basic foundational beliefs of uh, the Hebrew people, any good God follower would never make an oath of innocence if they weren't actually innocent. This is what everyone thought because if they did, if they did swear innocence and weren't innocent, the expectation was that God would strike them dead on the spot for taking his name in vain. So it's a really serious thing to make an oath of innocence and be lying about it. So much so that if you make an oath of innocence, it's assumed that you're innocent. So 
in chapter 31 of Job, he has finally had enough of God's absence and finally had enough of his friend's accusations. And he basically takes legal action against God. If God is accusing, if God is suing Job for some wrongdoing, Job makes an oath of innocence that God is obligated to accept unless God has evidence against Job, in which case God is compelled to appear and testify in court. In short, Job appeals to God's law against God himself, which is pretty brilliant and pretty bold. Um, As Harold Kushner, uh, a, a Jewish author and teacher writes, Job is saying, I invoke God's own law against him. I hereby swear in the name of the same God who has denied me justice, but in whom I still believe that I am innocent of all possible charges. I swear by the name of that God that I have done nothing wrong. So God, according to your own law, you are required to appear in court to present evidence against me or by failing to do that, recognize me as innocent and drop all charges. And then Job drops the mic. Job serves God. And God appears. (laughs) And this is how the, the, the book of Job actually flowed at one point. Job makes this decree. And then the very last line of chapter 31 says, the words of Job to his three friends were finished. Everyone falls silent. And then immediately at that point, God finally makes his appearance in the story. But that's not how the book of Job is structured in the version that we have today. In the version we have today, we first have to deal with an intruder and an interrupter that just suddenly barges in on the scene. And we'll get to him next week. You can look forward to that. But I wanted to come back to this crazy story. Job sues God. And God obliges God shows up and starting in chapter 38, God speaks to Job. And when I think about this, at least today, when I thought about this, I got really mad. Maybe you can relate to this, especially after everything that's happened this year, all the uncertainty and grief and fear and death and isolation that comes in navigating a pandemic, all the turmoil and tension and anger and division and violence around race, all the toxic air as the mountains burn down and all the destruction of hurricanes, all the manipulation and propaganda and unrest that is still awaiting us as we get closer to election day, all the exhaustion all the disappointment, all the loss, all the fractured and strained relationships, all the sense of futility, all the pain and heaviness of 2020. When I consider all of that, I want God to show up and speak. I'm getting angry again, thinking about it. Is that too much to ask? I don't even necessarily want answers. 
at least not beyond just knowing that God is there. Is that so much to ask? Where are you as we're caving in on ourselves? As a country, as a community, as an individual, we're disintegrating and it feels like you're just watching it happen. Where are you? And as I asked these questions earlier today, there was no whirlwind. I didn't hear a voice, unfortunately. But these thoughts popped in my head. And I can't say for sure that these weren't my thoughts. I can't say for sure that they were God's thoughts. Uh, Maybe they're both, but at the very least, they seem to be true. And the thoughts were this, where am I? I'm everywhere. I'm in every laugh of your daughter. I'm in every person that sent you a kind word. I'm in your friend booking a meeting with you to drink whiskey and ask why you've been so distant lately. I'm in every act of generosity toward you. I'm in this random cold snowstorm that you hate. I'm in this key lime pie that Nathan made you for no other reason than he knew you'd like it. I'm in you (laughs) crying in your office alone (laughs) into a microphone (laughs) by yourself. (laughs) which still makes me laugh even in the middle of crying it makes me laugh that I'm just sitting here talking to myself the last thought that popped in my head was I'm right in front of you if you're willing to see it and I'm still here even if you're not and all of that is true God has been present just not in the way that I want I want a burning bush I want tongues like fire falling from the sky I want a voice in a whirlwind I want God on my terms and I sometimes plead and other times insist that God meets my demands so easy to focus on what's hard or what's been terrible about this year. It's so easy to focus on what I don't have, which includes God meeting my demands. (laughs) I don't have a whirlwind, but in doing so in focusing on those things, I miss all the beautiful ways that God is showing up all around me all the time. So I feel like what God is saying to me And maybe what he's saying to you is simply gifts over demands. Receive the gifts God is giving you over making demands of him. Maybe you can relate. What are you demanding of God these days? 
Where is God showing up for you in the midst of 2020? This is a shorter talk for this series because (laughs) the talks have been pretty long because this book is complicated, but this one's shorter because I think maybe the best use of our time would be for you to talk about these things, talk about these questions with your house church or with whoever you're with. And if you're by yourself, call someone or journal about it. I mean, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but this is a difficult time. We need to remember and be reminded by others where we've seen God in 2020. We need to hear where they've seen God in 2020. We need to be more focused on receiving the gifts that God is giving us than making demands that he show up in a very specific way, insisting that he meets our demands. So feel free to pause the liturgy or just end it here and talk with others or reflect. What are you demanding of God these days? Where is God showing up for you in the midst of 2020?